Hello, welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's guest is George Pine, the former NASCAR executive and IMG CEO, who founded Bruin Sports Capital in 2015, which has emerged as one of the most intriguing companies operating in the sports business today. Last November, Bruin raised a further $600 million from CVC Capital Partners and the Jordan Group, which suggests they are well-placed to add to their portfolio of sports companies that includes Two Circles, Delta Tray, Soul Sight, and Engine Shop. Before this, Pine was CEO of IMG in the Ted Forsman era, part of the management team who sold the company to William Morris Endeavour in 2014. So he's had a varied career that has brought him into day-to-day contact with some of the most colourful characters in the American and European sports market over the last 25 years. People like Forsman and Sir Martin Sorrell, John Portland of the Portland Group, NASCAR boss Brian France and Ari Emanuel, to name a few. We talk about what he's learned along the way and where he thinks the value of sport resides today and in the near future. If you enjoy the podcast, go back and check out our back catalogue on unofficialpartner.com, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. And don't forget to rate and subscribe via iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Here is George Pine. Good morning. Thanks for... uh, Finding the time. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. What, what is it? Eight o'clock now in New York. Yes. What's the day look like for you? I probably will do ten to twelve calls today. I, I am, you know, everyone's got their own way of approaching things, but my way has always been through the schedule. So back in a normalized world, I would schedule. I'm pretty efficient. So now, in the uh, pandemic world, we. Uh, we're pretty efficient in scheduling calls. Uh, so it's a, it's actually um, a pretty efficient and pretty productive typically. Are you are you a Zoom person? Yes and no. I mean, I, I've tried to improve myself in the pandemic. So I, I find myself going out for long walks. So I'll, I'll walk an hour or two a day and, and do calls walking around. And then I'll do a number of Zooms as well. It's like Charles Dickens. He was a big walker. Yeah, no, you know, because it's just sitting down after a while, it gets a little monotonous. So I like, I like the walking. Um, can you tell me, I'm really interested in uh, brewing what it is, because I talked to a few people and you'll, you'll know over the course of this podcast that I am not a finance guy. So I'm looking for you to just give me some information. What is brewing? Where, what's its place in the world? Well, brewing, you know, if, if you want go back you know, to me it was a, an idea of, of investing in great companies and in people right and trying to build build companies I mean that to me at the end of the day why why did I choose to do what I'm doing is I like to build things with good people and what I really try to do was lean on what I've done for 25 or 30 years so only investing and building in people, in areas that I think I know something about, right? And so the idea is to take the 25 or 30 years of learning and apply that in a way that builds things in in, in an entrepreneurial way and um, in a way that, you know, is consistent with my own values. And so that's really what Bruin really is. Um, uh, technically, it's an investment vehicle, I suppose, where we take investors' money and we invest in companies and we build them. But more for me, because I am a person, I'm not a corporation, I'm an individual somewhat unique. 
It's really about partnering or with great CEOs and management teams and building things and changing things. I mean, we have, um, you know, we, we have invested around the change in media, media distribution is changing. And so if you look at our investments, they reflect the opportunities within the change. And so it's kind of been investing in the change and investing in disruption and investing in really good people. So the, when you look at, um, and I want to talk about your career in a minute because it is really interesting, and I want to, and the people that you've worked with and for is a sort of roll call of the last twenty five years. It's quite, you know, it's it's fascinating. But just in terms of the, you're a sports guy. You're you're you know you were NASCAR, IMG. You you your steep your family steeped in NFL. You've got sons, I understand, who are star superstar sort of college footballers, and so. Whenever I talk to finance people, they see specialism and, and, and passion for, the, for sport as a sort of bit of a weakness. Do you recognize that framing of, of when you talk to finance, pure finance, they say, okay, that just gets in the way of the decision making. It just clouds the judgment. You're going to be too emotionally drawn into uh, projects that you fall in love with. What's your answer to that? Because that, that's, that's sometimes a framing by, by bankers. Yes. Well, you know, I, I came to sports kind of in a backwards way. So, you know, uh, first of all, it's a passion point, right? You know, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. My dad played for the Boston Patriots. My granddad played in the NFL and I had the same name that they did. So to say that sports was important to me, it was important. And you know, I just wasn't, you know, as a kid, it was American football, it was basketball. I was an umpire in baseball. I mean, I loved all sport, and um, it's been—it's just been a big part of our lives. Obviously, I have the children that play college sports. My wife's father was a really good PGA Tour golfer, so it's just been part of my whole life. But you know, I—I am—and I, um, I think it really helped me. So I went in early on in sports, a work in sports that I really was an expert in. So just taking NASCAR as an example, I'm the least mechanical guy you're ever going to meet so i don't own a toolbox I, I, I'll, I'll, t- I'll argue with that one but you can have it yeah <laughs> i mean I never changed motor oil and uh you know I, I struggle to change a tire but i will say having been around sport my whole life it helped me i could relate to the athletes better probably to me the garage was a lot like the locker room and i understood things it helped me understand the uh the business better. I also think it helped me understand what fans want because I was a fan. Uh, so, you know, I, I understand that sometimes people can say that it clouds their judgment, but my first 10 or 11 years in sport was in a sport that I really wasn't necessarily passionate about. I, I grew to love NASCAR and I love the people and I had tremendous respect for them, but you know, I wasn't necessarily, you know, what I was really passionate about. And, you know, I came prior to that at it from uh, the Portman companies and more um, analyzing businesses and assessing businesses for them. So I think, you know, my background is unique in terms of I grew up in sport. I spent my first 10 years in sport in a sport that I really wasn't very knowledgeable about. And, um, and then I, you know, I had the business background before I was in the sports business. 
What what do we in the UK not get about NASCAR? Because we hear a lot about NASCAR, and, and particularly in the sports business, it talked about a lot in terms of its, you know, the devotion of the fans and the the just the extraordinary sort of engagement level. But what is it that we don't quite understand about NASCAR? Do you think? Well, I th- I, you know, I was there from '95 to 05. And I think, you know, one of the things at, at that time that really benefited NASCAR too is a lot of people grew up working on their car with their dad or their uncle. And the car automobile was a, uh, a lifestyle statement. And so there was a lot of passion into that. And it was uh, something that was uh, an affinity that was passed down through generations. So I think on the emotional side, I think it was the connection that the fans had with the drivers. And uh, there was a sense of belonging, uh, people that were genuine, people that you admired. And there was a real emotional connection. And then on the racing side, that was a little, it's a little bit different, is that a good NASCAR race has 25 lead changes. And the cars bang into each other, which, you know, is an, exci- is an exciting uh, thing to watch. So I think the combination of 25 lead changes and, um, and then this emotional connection makes it you know made it unique at least that that's what it was like when when we were there and you know formula one you could get 25 lead changes in a season couldn't you that's probably the big and and obviously those cars cannot bang into each other so you know these these cars are you're you're going 185 195 miles an hour and you're they're hitting hitting each other and that's a different experience and you were there when i mean dale earnhardt i mean died live on television, didn't he? I mean, that was a, that was an extraordinary sort of cultural moment more than any that, you know, it's obviously a tragedy, but that, that was something that was a huge sort of deal at the time. I remember. Yes. Probably one of the most challenging situations I've ever been involved in, in my life. We, we lost a seven time champion uh, on national TV with 35 million people watching the race on the last lap of the Daytona 500. And we had lost three other drivers uh, as well so four drivers in 18 months and that was a very very difficult time uh, for me I had just been promoted to run the company a couple weeks before and uh, that was very difficult it was very difficult on a lot of fronts of course you know the things that are difficult you can either break you or make you better and um, you know myself you know worked heavily on the safety initiatives you know, leading the Earnhardt investigation and, and, and helping to lead many of the safety advancements that we made, which uh, in a lot, a lot of that was changing culture, changing the way you looked at things. And uh, that was very challenging under enormous pressure. And then at the same time, we, you know, we really did not have um, the kind of the communications infrastructure that you needed to be in a crisis. You know, here in America, that you're in trouble when you lead the nightly news three nights in a row, um, you know, in the USA Today, it was like the number one, Earnhardt was on the cover. It was like the number one most viewed newspaper in the history of the USA Today at the time. I think Time Magazine, the cover was uh, was the most acquired or one of the top two or three most acquired Time uh, covers at the time. So the scrutiny and the pressure that we were under at that time uh, was, you know, very, very severe. So you had two things that you had to manage at the one, on the one hand, your communications as to what you stood for as an organization, what your values were, what you were gonna do. And then the practical matter is that you had a challenge. Um, you had a safety challenge at four people that were, that were 
they passed away racing in 18 months and you had a problem and you had to fix it and you had both of those things at the same time you know in real time and your product is on national tv every week so for me it was a real learning of a crisis management um, in terms of communications but also just has in a practical sense of what to do and, and let me tell you that those things today really serve me well at bruin because when i always like to tell people you know, that we're really good when things go bad because we have been through real challenges. And, uh, and so that experience I'm able to draw on, uh, you know, today uh, when we face challenges in, in, in the business. And so that, I think that's something that's, that's, very, that's very helpful to me today. It wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I didn't think about the benefits of that experience 10, 15, 20 years later, but it really, it really helped me, uh, in so many different ways, but it was a very challenging time. And, and obviously, you know, I knew Dale Earnhardt. Um, he was a great man. And, uh, you know, I was on a personal level, it was, it was also difficult. And, and you're sort of, I guess you're balancing there the, you know, the essential jeopardy and danger. That's what makes not just NASCAR, but all sport compelling to an extent, but also with the requirement. And, you know, you, obviously it was a, it was a personal and, and, you know, enormous tragedy. So, I mean, you're seeing that in lots of other sports now, aren't you? In terms of that, trying to tone down the danger whilst also maintaining the excitement. It's a very difficult balance. Right. I mean, you have to, as, as a value, you have to have safety as a, as a value and you, but you want to have close competitive competition. And so it's really striking that balance. And what can happen, what happened to us was we got behind. We were behind. It wasn't intentional, but we were behind. And uh, and what had happened is the, the so much money poured into the sport, um, and people focused more on winning than they necessarily did on safety. And so we, we got behind. But you know, the, to the credit of the industry, the industry caught up really fast too. I mean, when I look back, we put in soft. You know, I my, my I had an old boss who. He'd say, listen, Sonny, when you go into a cement wall at 185 miles an hour, you know, bad things are going to happen. Well, guess what? You don't have to go into a cement wall. You know, you can go to an energy absorbing wall. So, you know, we redesigned the cars, we redesigned the seats, redesigned the, the seat belts. Um, you know, there's real improvements that you can make. And so that's why I always believe you can make sports safer and at the same time keep it compelling. So, in terms of following your timeline, then that from from NASCAR, you go to IMG. What was that? Were you headhunted for that job, or were you just were you? Did you fancy a change? Was it driven by you or by them? It, it was, you know, I had been there eleven years at NASCAR, and I felt like we we had done everything that we could do. You know, age always plays a, has always played a part in my role in life. So I was forty years old, been there 10, 11 years. We had just signed a big TV deal. We did a big uh, Nextel sponsorship. Now I kind of felt like, you know, I had done all that, that, that we could do. So I was a little antsy, to be honest, um, but I loved NASCAR and, and loved the people. And I had someone say, hey, you ought to go meet this guy, Ted Forsman. And I didn't know who Ted was. And he had just bought IMG probably a year or so before. So I went in and meet, met Ted, not knowing really doing a lot of diligence on who he was. And I thought it was going to be a half hour meeting. It was two hours. And then Ted really pursued me. and. Uh, and I, I, I ended up going to, to IMG. And the reason for that, I felt, you know, I was 40 years old. I thought working for someone like Ted Forsman, I could learn a lot because he had bought and sold 39 companies. 
And of course, IMG was a global company, a great company, and I thought it was a, a, a better opportunity. So I thought just in terms of broadening myself out in sport, it would be good. And I also thought working for Ted would be a, a really good experience for me. So the combination of those two things led me to IMG. So at that, at that point, obviously everyone, I mean, the audience of this podcast is, is will know IMG. They all know and have a view of IMG. And it was famed, there, are, but re, the reality now versus the McCormack sort of era, you came in, uh, uh, Forceman sort of bought the company when McCormack died, as I understand it. So he, you, the, you were changing it from the McCormack sort of Arnold Palmer golf and uh, tennis sort of superstar athlete rep type company into something else was that was that the brief that you were given yes i mean we we did a fair amount of restructuring in the beginning it was a very you know if you think about my experience at nascar nascar i went in um it was one office it really didn't have a commercial department we kind of built from the ground up when i left we had nine offices a thousand employees you know when i started there we were at tnn and when i left we were on nbc and fox uh when I started, we were mostly auto parts manufacturers. When I left, we had 100 Fortune 500 companies. But it really was a growth experience going up, right? When building something from the bottom up, literally in the beginning, I think I hired every employee myself. And then obviously that changed as time went on. But at, at IMG, it was a very different experience. I was working for a financier who had bought and sold 39 companies. I was 40 years old, which was pretty young at the time. And... Uh, and it was a re- global restructuring with a global view of the business of sports. So that was different for me. Also, the, what you had to do is you had to identify growth segments and really grow earnings, um, not, not revenues, but actually, you know, earnings. And so that was the learning experience for me. So it, uh, we did diversify the company. We did build out businesses that, um, you know, heretofore either didn't exist or didn't, weren't as profitable and, you know, we were successful at a number of things. We were not successful at some other things. But overall, we were, we were successful at more things than, than, than not. And, uh, and it worked out well for the investors. And I think we, we did a good job growing, growing the business. Was it always the deal that you were going to sell? I mean, that was, I, mean, we were talk, I remember talking to people at IMG at the time over here in the UK, in the London office. There was a, a sense that because Forceman, his reputation was obviously, he was one of the barbarians at the gate. He was one of the original private equity pioneers. It was inevitable that the company was going to get sold. Do you think that changes the culture of the place on a day-to-day basis? A little bit. I think it tends to make things slightly um, more focused on it efficiency although you know uh forceful alone img for nine years and i do think the way to the way to build and create value is not to think about your exit so i you know it's a little bit of both i mean i do think it puts a little more focus on things versus if you think you're, you're there's never an end in sight but i do think you have to run uh the business uh, almost absent of what what the exit might be i think that's the best way to create value and that's really something that i learned working for Ted. When did you first meet Ari Emanuel and what were your impressions? You know, Ted Forson was friendly with Ari. So I met Ari and Patrick, I think for the first time at the grill in Beverly Hills with Ted. And Ari, uh, and I used to see Ari, Ted had a conference in Aspen every year. So I would see Ari. And I thought Ari was an ambitious, smart, hardworking guy who wanted to do great things. And I think the same for 
Patrick Weitzel, and they were supported, uh, you know, eventually by a guy named Egon Durbin from Silver Lake. And when we did the management presentation to sell IMG, we did 10 of them. You know, Egon was there as well. And I, after presenting to them and them presenting to us, I felt like, hey, you know, these guys want to do big things and they have um, a lot of ambition. So in terms of the... Marty Sorrell is an interesting figure in this because there was always the story, and whether this was apocryphal or not, is that because he was he started at IMG under McCormack, and he there was a sense that he was always going to go and buy IMG later on. Did that was that always just a bit of a story? Or was there any truth in that? Do you think, or do you, um, because he was he a player around about that time? Because then he was mentioned in dispatches around that that deal. Well, certainly, what Martin accomplished with WPP was amazing. When you look back on it, right? I mean, he built a company from one company, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, Martin, I think, also loved IMG like so many other people that worked there over the years, and I think he always had an interest in IMG. I just don't think. Um, in the end, he wasn't one of the finalists for, for IMG. But I think, you know, he, he he had a passion for IMG and an appreciation for the company, for sure. You're, um, so you exit IMG and then you sort of start brewing. Um, when there's a, there's a uh, I was looking interesting at the, one of the sort of early press releases around that. And you, you've, you were talking, um, about that WPP had put in the benefit of long-term flexible capital cannot be overstated. Again, this comes back to my ignorance of money. What does that mean? Well, I think when, when you look at um, Martin, Martin hardly ever sold a company. So one of the things he was, a, you know, he was a founder and someone who loved to build things. And so I was excited about partnering with someone who had a very long-term philosophy and so uh, I found that to be quite appealing. So in terms of the where you are with, with brewing, because I think the reason that um, I'm interested in what you're doing and the decisions that you're making now, because obviously they are indicative of something. They're indicative of something you've seen in terms of the way in which the sports market is going to evolve over a period of time. Um so that that I guess is the question in terms of where what excites you now when you look across the landscape. You've got you've made a number of acquisitions, and and people over here will know Two Circles very well. They'll know Delta Tray, um, Engine Shop is a is a is a brand that they'll be familiar with. Um, where is the excitement from your perspective? Well, I think if you look at almost every investment we've made, it's really been around, as I said earlier, that the change in, in media consumption. And so if you look at what we've done, you know, Two Circles was the data company. Data is going to become more valuable in the future. We wanted to be in the data space. When you look at Delta Tray, uh, another global company that provides best-in-class technology on a global basis, OTTs are a big part of the future, and something else will be after the OTTs. So that's why we invested in Delta Tray. When you look at SoulSight, a design company, in a digital world, design becomes more important in a digital world. Overtier is a, stream, a streaming company. Engine Shop, uh, you know, live events, of course, we get hit by the pandemic, but live events um, should be more valuable in a, in a fragmented world. And that, you know, is why we went into 
engine shop and why we went into on location. So it, it does come from that view. Um, and then you're really trying to find things that you think are underdeveloped and that you can build and that we think we can influence the outcome in because we are different, I think, in that we have worked in every phase of the sport business. And so with that understanding and capability and 25 years of experience, you know, we really can help a management team uh, and we're helpful, meaning, you know, I, I have been on a sales call for every company that we've invested in and we've changed really every company that we're in, created new lines of business. And so we want to be able to, you know, help management unlock value that for whatever reason on their own, that they were unable to do so operationally as well as, you know, maybe behind further investment with the company. So just on the, the OTT question then. So your bet there is that, I mean, you're buying shovels in a gold rush. Is that, is that a crude way of putting it? You're sort of saying, you're, so you're selling, selling shovels in a gold rush. That, that you're, um, it's the company that can the make the streaming happen rather than invest in the rights around. That's a, that's a, you know, a, a different category of investment. But are you in that as well? We're really in the category of making it happen. And yeah. again, we're making it happen through technology, through data, through and through design. And so it's all the different components in the ecosystem that we're, we've invested behind. And, um, you know, part of the things, you know, one of the, I learned a lot working for Ted. And, uh, and I, I find myself quoting him almost every day. You know, he's always like, let's go into a growth segment. Right. So for us at IMG, the growth segment was uh, college sports. We built out the academy business, but, you know, spend your time on things that can you can grow. And so I do think the segment that, you know, we've chosen to go into reflects, we believe that's a, is a grow, growing area. Doesn't mean you can't go into a more mature segment, but you really have to be confident that in the mature segment, there are, are real growth opportunities. Is it possible to discern the sort of ambitions in sport of the of the big tech platforms, Amazon, Google, Apple? Do you know what you know? Have you any insight in terms of where they see sport in the scheme of everything that they're doing? Yeah, you know, it's. I think that their opportunities are so broad that we have really not seen them make a significant investment in sport to date. Logically, you would think that that would change because sport connects with such a passionate audience, a global audience. Um, so you would think eventually you would see more of an investment than you do today. Today, you know, they, they do, there are pockets of investment, but I wouldn't say that there's been a coherent global strategy. And, you know, I, I went one day with, my, with our team of people and did an offsite with a group of people from McKinsey to study Amazon. And when I came away from Amazon, I, I understood, you know, they're looking at things like, how do I reinvent healthcare? You know, how do I, you know, simple things like maybe automotive aftermarket parts. So they have such a broad array of opportunities that sport, um, you know, they're dabbling in it, but they, they haven't waded in the way that you might think that they would. Um, and, and I think that could very well change in the future. But I think the reason so far is this, they just have so many different opportunities. Uh, in front of them that sport is not one of them that they've really invested behind yet. 
So the story that we've told in sport for, well, since Murdoch and the Premier League in, you know, the early 90s, but also the big broadcast sort of cable and satellite battles, that that framed how we perceived the rights market around the big sports properties. Do you think that they're going to enter in the same way? Do you think that the the next iteration of, of, of sort of rights uh, sports rights market is going to be between those platforms, or do you think that they're looking at looking at it differently? They own the data; it's their walled garden, and sports going to have to play along with them. Yeah, I think it's to be determined. I mean, I think eventually, you know, more and more you're going to see OTTs, more and more you're going to see direct to consumer um, media platforms. That, without question, that's the future. And and I and you know, not just the con- sale of content; it's the relationship with the consumer. So, you know, I see a day when a sports property is going to have a relationship with a consumer that's going to include sharing daily content, whether that be audio, visual, data, written word, and some combination on a, on a daily basis. And then you're going to have a live game component. What the challenge is, all is just that that model right now economically is not as attractive as the, as the paid for TV model. And so that that transition, that how that takes place over the next five or ten years, you know, we'll have to see how how that plays out. <clears throat> It'll be slower because the money's in the old media and not on the new media. But the consumer, particularly younger consumers, they're migrating to the new media. So it's just going to be a balance of trying to manage the economics from one uh, side to the other. There's a there's an inevitable COVID question, but the, you've your career. I mean, we've we've has gone through a number of I mean macro shocks. Let's put them that way. Let's put it you know go back to the banking crisis. You've got nine eleven in there. You've got a whole load of um, bits in between. Is this are there any differences between recessions? Do you think in terms of sport? Do you think that there is something different about this one? It's obviously hit sport particularly hard. A live event market, hospitality market. All of these are going to suffer very badly. Um, what's your view on that? Is it just a just a, another recession to get through? I, I think actually that this will be a, this one's a little more focused on sport. <clears throat> and I, you know, I feel as someone who's grown up in the business for twenty five or thirty years and loves the industry and, and, and the people in it, re- it really is gut wrenching for me to watch all of this. To be you know quite honest, um, I think the live event business is going to be challenged. Uh, over a 12 to 36 month period. And I think it's going to be difficult in the short run. In the long run, I think like any difficult situation, very positive advances are going to be uh, a result of it. So I think the live game day events experience is going to be reinvented. But in the in the short run, there's, there's going to be a lot of financial challenges. Um, I also think that what you're seeing is an acceleration of, of, of digital media. I, I can feel it in the companies that everybody is embracing digital. And so I think that the pandemic, one of the things coming out of it is going to be an acceleration in the use of, of digital media. And I think the third element here is that, you know, sport will probably be disproportionately hit in terms of the, the drain on capital versus some other industries. I mean, sport is like the airline industry. Sport is uh, like the travel industry, sport is hard hit. I mean, they're playing matches now that w- without fans, and that that those fans support uh, jobs and revenue streams that are significantly impacted 
and they're going to be impacted until there's a vaccine for the virus. And they're going to have a longer term impact, I think, which will force positive reinvention for the consumer. I mean, I think the game day experience is going to get better for the consumer as a result of the pandemic. That's at the end. But right from the beginning to the end, there's going to be some real challenges. So I think I think you're looking at turbulence uh, for the next 12 to 36 months. There's a um, a sense that when I mean, after you know, when um, Emmanuel and Reitzel bought IMG, they then invested into UFC, and that appeared to be at the time the talk was that okay, this is an agency who wants to own stuff and not just have a supplier relationship into um, into sport. Do you think that generally that's a trend that is going to continue? Presumably, there's a lot of distressed sale opportunities out there but is that the right route forward do you think well i think if you if you have talented people and you can apply talented people to a business i think you know it's a better investment if you could own something versus versus renting something so certainly i think that that's a uh, that you could see that develop more and more in, in the future i also do think though that as you approach things again and, and it, a little bit of a, what I would say a, a difference with Bruin. I do think operational expertise matters, you know, and as I said, uh, being through something that's difficult and managing through difficult things is very important, particularly in a time like this, as well as people that can generate the revenue. And then also, I, I, I think, you know, having the proper leverage on businesses. I mean, I think when we look at our businesses, if you criticize me, I'm, I'm more of an operator and not necessarily a a financial guy. Therefore, you know, we have lower, le- lower amounts of leverage on our businesses. And I think, um, you know, we create value by operations, not necessarily financial structuring and also who your source of capital is. I think all of those things in a more challenged world uh, are going to be more valuable. And I think when you're in a bull market, those things become, become less valuable. And, in terms of the, the the sort, because a lot of sports entities are looking now at private equity VC money, and they're seeing a, <clears throat> potential deals to be done, or people, or people, you know, there are think there are activity happening all over the place. Now, what, where does, why does it matter where the money comes from, the the, the source of the money, the type of money that is going into sport? What 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 is your view on that? Does it matter? Well, I think what you want to partner with, if I were a CEO or an entrepreneur, I would want to feel comfortable with the the people that I'm working with. I would want to make sure that the people I'm working with empathize with my my constituent base, that they understand my business, and that they can really add value to my business. And I would want them to have a lot of experience in dealing with opportunities and challenges. and, And I would want to make sure that they have enough capital behind them to to ensure that should there be a choppy seas that they can they can survive the storm. And those are things that are often overlooked when things are going well. Hmm. You let's talk about teams for a moment because obviously um, over here we the story of the uh, the season has been Liverpool and you've got the Fenway Group and they're now getting a great deal of of praise for the way in which they've manage that transition and Liverpool have had previous owners American owners that and it went badly um, the Hicks Gillette era particularly what's the difference do you think and do you think our teams on your agenda 
you know, the, anything's possible. So we, we, I wouldn't rule anything in or, in or out. Um, I do think that on, on, if you look at it and I'm at it for 30 years, I mean, it all, it all does start at ownership, right? If you have a good ownership, then you're going to have a good club. If you don't have good ownership, it's very hard to have a good club. And so ownership, you know, really makes a difference. In, and uh, I've seen very few successful teams that were very successful without really uh, strong ownership. So in terms of the, but what is the difference between the two? No, I'm not talking about those specific, but what's the difference between a good owner and a bad owner? I think that, I think two things. One, a good owner um, provides the financial resources and discipline to help a team make good investments in the players. And typically the, the clubs that do better than those others are, are ones that have a system of how to val- value talent, right? Um, so I, I think the people that, systematically um, properly value the talent and know what talent they want are going to be more successful than those that don't. And typically a good ownership uh, group finds somebody that can help assess uh, the talent and understands the cost of the talent and the value of the talent and managing that relationship. Uh, really good ownership groups attract those kinds of people and let then let them go do their job. Um, and I think that's the trick as well as also doing a good job on the commercial side. Okay, so just to sort of round us off, you've got the the last bit of news around brewing was CVC and the Jordan Company entering a long term partnership. Um, what, what's what's that? Where does that fit into your your the longer term view? Well, I just think it, you know it gives us a really strong capital base. Um, really a, a gives us the ability to to do bigger things. Uh, also, probably gives us um, more confidence, much in the way that WPP did, to do things on a global basis. If you look at Bruin today, most of our business is outside the U.S. Um, and so I think for us, what it does, it gives us a global network in terms of CVC. And in CVC, somebody who understands sport with their experience in MotoGP and Formula One and their investment in rugby. We have a partner that's global and understands sport. And the Jordan Company is someone that's been in business for 40 years, was an investor in, in Bruin One. And uh, so we're excited about, about them. So I think what it means for us is we're well capitalized going forward. And we have um, a good deal of um, capital behind us. And finally, are you, are you, are you building IMG by stealth? Is this, is this a, when you look across your um, catalog of companies, are you, is, that, is that part of the plan? Yeah, I, I think we're trying to build um, a global platform and that is is futuristic, right? And, and, and yet, like I said, data, design, technology. We're, we're, we're trying to build a, a, a global company that is, a, is its own company. So we're not really modeling ourselves off of anybody else. We're kind of doing our own thing and we're building, backing great CEOs and in embracing management teams and trying to empower them to, to do things that they weren't able to do before. I mean, I have had a lot of fun at this. I mean, we, when you look at Delta Tray and what Delta Tray is today, you know, it has a, a much more global business. Um, it's thriving and it's fun. And I'm, I'm enjoying two circles. Um, the management team there is young, it's dynamic, it's aggressive in the data space. Um, 
you know, so what we're trying to do is back great managers and, and let them do things that perhaps for whatever reason they weren't able to do before. And, um, and we're going to keep doing that. We're not really trying to emulate anybody. We're just trying to do our own thing. And finally, DAZN, what's your, your view on that? That's one of the more interesting sort of stories of the last few years. I think it was, I think it's bold and unapologetic. You know, I think Simon Denyer is a very, very talented guy. And, uh, you know, I admire what they've done. Um, you know, it's easy for everybody. Like, I feel like I'm on the, on the pitch in the field of play. And so, you know, I, when you're on the pitch and you're on the field of play and you see people trying to do bold things, you know, I respect them. And, and so I have a lot of respect for Simon Denyer. I have a lot of respect for Ari and Patrick. And, uh, you know, they're on the, they're on the pitch. And, uh, and I wish him well, I'm on the same pitch and I'm, I, I hope we do well, but I have a lot of respect for what these guys are, are, are doing and what they've done. And, and I have a lot of res- respect for what they're capable of doing moving forward. Okay. George Pine, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.